Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Getting sober can be the hardest thing a person can do in their lifetime, but there are a lot of good reasons to do it. I don't want to die. I really don't want to die. And it's getting close to that. And if you're a person who's trans, finding a recovery center that can accept and help all of who you are can be near impossible. These centers that say they're LGBT friendly, they often think the T is silent. Plus what the chief clinical officer at a treatment facility here in Connecticut wants you to know if you're thinking about whether or not you should consider a life of sobriety. Substance use disorder is not defined by how much or how often, but how it impacts your life. Someone can have two glasses of wine every night and it doesn't affect their life at all. But if you are binge drinking on the weekends and blacking out, and it's enough where it's impacted your job or your relationship or driving, you know, that's the problem. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Audacious, after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Addiction affects people of all shapes and sizes, skin tones and geographic locations, ages, personalities, and genders. Today, meet two people who are committed to sobriety and the chief clinical officer at a treatment facility. Lazarus Letcher is from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they're a little over a thousand days into their sobriety from alcohol abuse. They've written a lot about how traditional recovery services like Alcoholics Anonymous and rehab centers are not designed with people like them in mind. So I asked them to define what they mean by, quote, people like me. (laughs) People like me. Well, I am Black. I'm non-binary trans. I'm queer. I'm joyful. I'm many things. Um, But yeah, I don't necessarily think I was who the founders of the 12-step program had in mind in the 1930s. Do you remember the first time you took a drink? Yes. We'll not count communion. We'll fast forward. (laughs) Um, That's generous of you, actually. Thank you. You could could take it back there if you wanted to, but you're letting them off the hook. I get it. It was an Indiana communion on a cold day. No. Yeah, I was in high school and I was on the track team. And so I was able to hang out with older kids. And I was very, very excited that I got invited to one of their after meet parties and like I remember being particularly attentive in the shower like everything had to be perfect before I went to this party and then I watched like everyone I admired throw up and I was like this is the life this is it I've arrived do you remember what that drink was it was vodka in a plastic handle mixed with yellow Gatorade so like I started out that's on brand yeah yeah high school classic As you grew up and sort of worked your way through the social ranks of things, what were things that made you want to pick up a drink? What were those triggers? Yeah, so there was never a bad reason to drink. I had reasons that seemed more justifiable. So for instance, like every time there was a shooting of an unarmed Black person by the police, I would get blackout drunk typically. And I had ample opportunity to do that, unfortunately. But those felt like especially righteous moments to get completely blotto. And in retrospect, it was a coping mechanism. 
And I don't believe in like maladaptive coping mechanisms. I believe we have the tools that we have and that any tool can be turned into a weapon. So, you know, I did what I needed to do to survive in those moments and it definitely did not work. And, you know, and I would also drink to celebrate and I'd also drink if it was sunny and I would drink if it was too cloudy. (laughs) You know, I was very good at finding the perfect reason to always justify it, which was every single day. And I'd heard an interview with you. You were talking about a particular scene in an Indiana Jones movie. (laughs) Yes. I don't remember which Indiana Jones movie it was, but this woman was trying to assert her dominance and like her ability to hang with the boys. So she drank them all under the table. And I was watching this, you know, as a young black girl in Indiana who, you know, I'm kind of the last generation of trans people that didn't have the language as a youth to describe like, this is gender dysphoria. I do not fit into these boxes. And so I just remember thinking like, oh, that's how I'll do it. Like, that's how I'll become one of the boys is I just need to learn to outdrink them, which I did. Uh, (laughs) There are healthier ways to express masculinity. I have since learned. Now, I know that there's only one life you've had. You can't like take away a variable and compare your life to if this had been different, if that had been different. I wonder, looking back now, to what degree this feeling of being othered contributed to, I mean, if this is even answerable, I have no idea if it is. Feel free to be like, I don't freaking know, next question. (laughs) But like, how much do you think that feeling of being othered had to do with how often you picked up a drink? Oh, probably a lot. Yeah. I mean, and that's in a lot of recovery programs, that's one of the things they harp on a lot is like the feeling of constantly being different is really common with folks with addiction, with alcoholism. And I was like, but like, you guys, I'm extra different. Like I had extra reason. And um, like in addiction research, they use the language of like minority stress as being one of the reasons that people drink. And like, I'm a triple threat, like (laughs) black, queer, trans. And, you know, I grew up in the Midwest where I didn't know anybody else in any of those categories, let alone all three. And so for me, it was like a really quick shortcut to fitting in, to belonging, and like was a really good tool for my social anxiety. You know, like if I'm at a party and I see a Confederate flag in high school, it's like, well, I'll do a shot and it won't be as scary. You know, like normal Indiana things. And I'd use it a lot to like manage social anxiety, especially like around gender dysphoria too. And just, it was such a perfect way for me to like cleave my body from my mind Because just when I was fully embodied or like fully in tune, I was like, oh, there is something not right here. And like still didn't quite have the language for gender dysphoria for being trans, but was just, you know, very aware that I was queer, at least was hyper aware that I was black. And I was like, I really do not have room for anything else. I, I cannot, not today. So back me up to about a thousand days ago. Yeah. What happened? What made you decide on that date? Yes. So it was December 1st, 20, golly. 17. Thank you. (laughs) It's like, it's Blur's Day 2020. (laughs) I have no idea. So I had for about a year made the goal to not drink three days a week. And I had a habit tracker and stuff. And I never made the goal for an entire year. And what I kind of kicked that off was I was on tour with my band in Canada and just like was very depressed. And I was drinking a ton and had quit my antidepressants and who knew that was a recipe for like mental illness who's to say who knew who knew can't believe it yeah pouring a depressant on a depressed person off their antidepressants what could go wrong and so I'd 
left the tour early and still hadn't made the connection to alcohol. And I was like, I'll do a cleanse, you know, that's in right now. So I'll try to like do a cleanse three days a week and never could do it. And then I went through a really rough breakup where I had just realized every time I'd up in the past two or three years, like, you know, did an inventory. And I was like, oh, every situation where I acted against my morals, where I was not the person I wanted to be in this community, I was drunk. I was like, let me reward myself for this hard introspection with a drink. Then a couple more weeks of that, and I was like, okay, that's it. I am going to do a sober week. And I had to because I also was on antibiotics, and my doctor was like, you will be deathly ill if you drink. And I was like, like can you describe the degree of illness? Like, <laughs> is it manageable? Could I, like, take Tums? <laughs> right? Like, will I be dead or mostly dead yeah like you know like my name's lazarus i can bounce back from a lot of things (laughs) being one of them like give it to me straight doc so to speak and so i did i think five days without drinking and then my band um played a fundraiser and it was for trans ice detainees and it's an issue near and dear to my heart and like really wanted to be present for it and then someone was like oh can i buy you a beer i was like you know i'm a good midwestern christian (laughs) it's rude for me to say no And then I woke up in my bed and my keys were dangling from my front door. I had like some memories from the show and I just had this sense of like being outside my body and looking down on myself in my bed. And I was like, this is my last hangover. Something awful was supposed to happen last night. My guardian angels are hanging up their wings. I have to have it from here. Originally set out to just do a sober December. And in that first week, I, um, went through pretty intense alcohol withdrawals. So I was like, oh, I might be one of those people. This might not be like a cute cleanse for me and to like make my skin glow. Like this actually might be a life or death thing for me. What did withdrawals feel like? It felt like a flu. Like I had the shakes. It seemed like my hangover just kind of stretched out for days and days. And I hadn't realized like, oh, maybe that's why I was a daily drinker was to kind of stave off some of this. And when I was in college, I'd had the amazing opportunity to study abroad in Morocco. And it was like the first time in my life I'd ever blended in somewhere. Like I have maybe a sliver of North African, mostly West African and Irish, but I just blended in. And I also passed as a dude for the first time on accident. And it was this wonderful, magical time. And it wasn't until I got sober again, I was like, oh, it was also magical because I was living with a Muslim family and I was not drinking every day. But I'd gone through the same thing my first few days in Morocco. Like, I thought it was just a travel bug. And I was like, oh, I went through alcohol withdrawals years ago. When you came out as being addicted to alcohol, you're used to coming out. I'm also on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. And coming, there's like these big coming outs to the, you know, to your parents or the people who really matter in your life. And those are scary. And then there's mm-hmm. like the everyday, like, I'm getting married in a couple of weeks to someone whose name is Emily. And then, oh, now you know that I'm on this spectrum. But coming out as someone who's been struggling with alcohol, and I'm kind of avoiding using the word alcoholic, because I know that sometimes that word is not the best word for stuff too. We can get back to that. But how was it for you coming out about this? And did your history of having to come out in all the ways you've had to come out in your life help you come out about this? I think it did. And I do think maybe some of the people closest to me had like come out fatigue (laughs) from me. So I've been been every letter of, you know, the LGBTQ spectrum, like 
And I did it pretty early on as a means of self-protection at first. Like I, my second week sober, I like went up to Boulder and played a show in a bar and it was like absolute hell, but I did it. And I was like, cool. So I shouldn't be doing that for a while. And like, as we were driving back, someone texted me like, huge party at my house, I already have your favorite wine. And I was like, get behind me, Satan. Okay. Yeah. And so I kind of came out for self-protection. I was like, just so people know, I am no longer drinking. I'd appreciate your support by not inviting me to events for a while that are going to be alcohol-centric. You don't see me at the bars, which means you probably won't see me, period, because I don't know what else to do besides go to the bars. And I was really surprised by all of the immediate support I got. And I was even more surprised by people I knew that were already on a sober journey. I just assumed everyone that was sober was three times my age, owned a motorcycle, and like was just like hardened by life and a former cowboy. And I was like, oh, actually, people like me are sober. That's interesting. So coming out really helped me find community, which is like, of course, that's what happens every time I've come out. So rehab can't be easy for almost anybody. I mean, that's the, the feeling most people get is rehab is a hell of a challenge. But I imagine that it's got to be particularly hard when you're trans. Yeah, so I think I really could have benefited from inpatient care. And I attempted to find inpatient care. And rehab is, you know, it's a billion dollar industry. And I wish it was more in the business of healing, but that's not always the case. And one of the things these centers that say they're LGBT friendly is they often think the T is silent. So once I would begin to describe like, oh, I am non-binary, I am trans, how would rooms work? And they were like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so if we could just get your insurance information really quick. And I'm just like, okay, so you you are not hearing me. And I I know people that have tried to go stealth and like not out themselves as trans to try to go to rehab or people that went back into the closet to go to rehab. And, you know, it wasn't a good time. I believe that if you want to heal, you have to be able to show up as your whole self. And it's really hard to do that if you're being terrified about what transphobia you might face. Dean Spade is a brilliant trans legal scholar, and he calls it administrative violence. And how are we supposed to heal when these systems, these buildings are literally built without us in mind? For trans folks, there aren't a terrible amount of options, which is why I think 12-step programs and other outpatient programs need to be especially mindful about being open and safe and accepting places for trans and gender non-conforming people, because that's kind of our only option in a lot of parts of this country. So how did you find a group where you knew you could be wholly yourself? Right off the bat, my boss gave me numbers of pals that she had in recovery um, who were queer, who she knew were like trans affirming. And I was like, great. And I never called them, but now they're some of my best friends. <laughs> and I was like, great, I will never pick up the phone, but I appreciate this. And it was just kind of trial and error. And like, addiction is the great equalizer. Like, there are all sorts of people in the rooms. Addiction does not discriminate. Like, it does not give a what letters you have after your name, how much money's in your bank account, the color of your skin. Like, it don't give a Like, of course, there are environmental factors that play into it, but like, Some of the most diverse places I've been have been in the rooms. But I've also experienced not so great things like random rants about Puerto Ricans that I think were directed at me. And it's always like awkward when like someone's being racist towards you, but they get your race wrong. (laughs) It's it's a thing I've experienced from many angles. And like 
awkwardness over if I bring up gender and like in the 12 step programs, they have things that are considered outside issues and it's a very nebulous term. So like I've been told to not speak about race in the rooms or to not speak about being LGBT. Like you're just supposed to talk about alcoholism here. As if that's the only thing that has to do with it. Yeah. Like Audre Lorde says, we don't live single issue lives. And so I don't think my addiction is a single issue. Like the way that I move through this world definitely impacts the way that I drink and the way that I recover. And the only way I can heal is where I can show up as my whole self. That was Lazarus Letcher from Albuquerque, New Mexico. When we get back. Alcohol has been used to suppress, especially Black and Indigenous communities. I'm more dangerous to white supremacy sober. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, stories of recovery from alcohol. Let's get back to my conversation with Lazarus Letcher. They're a black, non-binary, trans, queer musician and activist from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And when we left off, they were talking about how difficult it is for them to find a recovery center that can accept and help them for all the things they are. So I asked them about the groups that are able to help. Yeah, so the first one for me was Recovery Dharma which is a Buddhist-based program. And I've been with them for like a little over two years. They've got Boku meetings on Zoom and they had that even before the pandemic. And they have an LGBTQIA group. And no matter what meeting you're in, and pronouns are just part of the introduction. And I haven't gotten nearly as much pushback. It's still a fairly white space, but since the start of the pandemic, we've also started a BIPOC group. And that's been just like, deeply deeply healing because i'll be honest the week after george floyd's murder i didn't go to any meetings because i didn't want to hear what white people had to say about it i did not want to hear white people complain about you know like these people are rioting it's like cool i'm scared about dying and that's uh, impacting my addiction today like these issues aren't necessarily the same um so i just didn't go to certain meetings that week I've also found daily trans 12-step meetings, and those have been an absolute godsend um, where, like, the outside issue thing just doesn't exist there. It's like, let's talk about our mental illness. Let's talk about codependency. And it's just such a lovely and affirming space. Like, I was never one that got to do, like, trans support groups when I was coming out. So it's like I'm getting that five-plus years (laughs) into my transition as well as, like, addiction support. So that's been really lovely. So affinity spaces for me have been the most comfortable spaces for recovery. Now, when I think about engaging with my community, especially pre-COVID, I definitely think about alcohol, whether I'm drinking it or someone else's, or it's just part of the deal. I wonder when you got sober over a thousand days ago, how did that change how you moved through the world? So being sober for me has definitely meant that I can be a more solid member of my community, much more present, um, much more engaged. Like I've been doing deliveries for mutual aid, which is something I couldn't do in the past because I was hammered or stoned all the time. Like that was the biggest shift for me when I got sober was like, oh, I could go anywhere at any time. My goodness, the world is my oyster. And in the past when I was drinking, I would not go too many protests, especially Black Lives Matter protests. Um, 
And so a week or two after a lot of the protests for George Floyd, some Native organizations had gathered together like with the momentum, and we'd seen this around the country of like, cool, and let's also tear down these Columbus statues, let's tear down these Confederate statues, let's tear down the statue of this awful conquistador down my house, like, here for it. And I biked to the protest that day, and I've never biked to a protest before, like just had a weird intuition. And I got there right when things were heating up, and we have um, like a lot of places of white supremacist militias that had been showing up to Black Lives Matter events, you know, to protect property. And in this instance, they're there to protect history. And it was getting heated. It was getting tense. And there was a guy who I noticed right when I got at the protest, just like really seemed off. I didn't like the way he was moving. And then he was going through the crowd and was just like pulling women and femmes off the statue. And like, I heard one of their heads hit the sidewalk. And so people started chasing him out of the crowd. And I was like okay, I'm going to start to dip. So I like got on my saddle and that's when I heard gunshots, six gunshots, like 10 to 20 yards away from me. And I just started pedaling without thinking. I just remember like there's a woman next to me who like had picked up her child and was running with her child. Like they were a football and just like utter chaos. And I thought I was going to die. If I ever went to an action before I got sober, I would always show up intoxicated and I would not have been able to do any of those things had I been wasted. I probably wouldn't have ridden my bike there. I might have like driven drunk, to be honest. I I wouldn't have stayed as long as I was to make sure like my friends and my kin were okay. And I don't think I would have healed after the event had I not had the rooms. Like I went to a 12-step meeting or a recovery dharma meeting once or twice a day and like the weeks that followed that. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for telling that story. It reminds me of something your dad said about sobriety. Yes. My dad has never drank and he is of the belief of a lot of men of his generation that, well, and I believe this now too, that alcohol has been used to suppress, especially black and indigenous communities. My dad's always said, I'm more dangerous to white supremacy sober, which I 100% agree with. I want to ask about COVID-19 and this pandemic that we are, I don't know if we're in the beginning of it. I don't know if we're in the middle of it. We're definitely not at the end of it, but whatever part we're in, how has the pandemic affected your sobriety, if at all? So I'm super grateful that I was familiar with online meetings before the pandemic. So that was an easy transition for me. I definitely miss in-person meetings. And one of the things that's helped me, like I keep calling it like my like COVID silver linings was so many of these affinity groups that I mentioned popped up during COVID. So like the daily trans meetings I go to, they're based, you know, across the country from me. They've existed in person for years and years, but since they've gone online, they've made it open internationally. So now now I've got these friends all over the country, like all of these trans people in recovery, I never would have met. And same thing with these like BIPOC recovery spaces, especially with all the Black Lives Matter uprisings happening and all of the communal grieving we're doing alone. Those spaces have been so essential and I would not have as much access to them had it not been for everything being suddenly online. I mean, and it definitely has its challenges. Like early in the pandemic, I was like, I could relapse and no one would know. 
And I was like, it's just me and my dog and she ain't going to tell on me. So that was definitely tricky with just like, oh, I have no accountability right now. Like I'm not going into an office. No one's going to smell my breath. Like it was a dangerous amount of freedom that I never had in recovery. When you stopped drinking over a thousand days ago, is there anything that you wished you'd heard that would have made your life a little bit easier? I think I was a couple months in once I finally heard this because I definitely like went through a mourning period. Like alcohol and I had been through so much together. Like I felt like I lost a friend almost, which is like really dark and sad in retrospect. But something a friend told me was like, think about everything you've gained, not this single thing that you've lost. You know, like I can get in my car and go anywhere I want at any time. I can watch friends' kids now, like, and they don't have to be worried. My life is really, really good right now. And all of the things I have are in some way connected to me getting sober. And whenever I start to like get in that funk of like, why can't I be like other 20 somethings and just simply go to the bar and enjoy the sun? Well, here's all of the other amazing things I can do. Like I can go kayak down the Rio. Like my dog can go drag me up a mountain. Like it is not this massive loss that I thought it was. I know you are an eighth generation musician. Yes. (laughs) So is there a song that you wrote that would be appropriate to get out of this segment with? Yeah, I wrote a song called Equanimity. And before I got sober, my diction and my music were deeply intertwined. Like being Irish, being black, like the masters of the suffering songs, you know, (laughs) like those are my jams. And I just, I thought I would always have to be inebriated to write or to perform. And now it's like, oh wait, I can actually finish a song. And I have this just new catalog that's like joyful songs. So I wrote a song called Equanimity that was just based on one of the meditations we do in Recovery Dharma. It's about, you know, finding balance in your life. And it was spurred by just like being in my garden with my dog and looking at the clouds. And I was just like crying. I was like, wow, isn't nature neat? And I'm like, oh, I've become this soft. Like, that's not a bad thing, but it is certainly a miracle. And just celebrating the radical choice of presence that sobriety is for me and all the joy that comes with that. I'm more than fine. I'm quite all right. Equanimity. Sweet serenity. Nothing lasts forever. We just learn to weather this one wild life. The beauty and the strife. I, I. That was Lazarus Letcher from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Their music and writings on sobriety and white supremacy can be found at LazarusLetcher.com. I wanted to talk with someone from a recovery center here in Connecticut to find out how they would or wouldn't be able to help someone like Lazarus. Not that there's anyone like Lazarus. And to hear a big picture view of what recovery may and may not look like for people. Alex Helfer is the chief clinical officer at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan and Wilton, Connecticut. I told her about what Lazarus said, how finding an inpatient treatment center that would be able to fully accept and thoroughly help a person who's trans is really hard. I asked her how Mountainside would be able to accommodate them. So our detox 
they have their own bathrooms. And yes, they are usually doubles, but we can accommodate a trans person in detox. Our biggest problem is our residential unit. We do have dormitory styles. We do also have one, one room and it's an old building. So everything's kind of been grandfathered in. Our detox is new. So we were able to set it up a little more privately. We don't tolerate any hate speech, discrimination. It's actually in our group norms as we start every group. That's part of the group norms. And so I think our staff are really trying to be more culturally diverse and sensitive in that. But I also, we don't have trans staff. So we, I do not think that we are the best program for a trans client. However, I don't want to deny someone treatment or have them not get treatment. And so it's always that balance of, are we the best fit? Um, and if we are not, let's get them a referral to, you know, where there is a good fit. Um, like I said, I'm pretty confident in our medical unit that for detox, that we are a good fit for trans clients. But I w- I'm not going to say, yes, we are a great fit for residential. We're not. We're not set up that way. We're the old dormitory females on the top floor, males on the bottom. We just started combining lunches with genders, you know, so um, everything was pretty gender because for a while that was the thing was gender specific tracks. And there are only two. Oh, yeah, there's only two. Um, So so (laughs) as we've educated ourselves a bit more and our clients who have also educated us, uh, we are trying to um, figure out the best ways to to do that. But I can definitely say we are still a work in progress and it's definitely a problem. We do. I do worry about, you know, how is the clientele going to react to a trans client? I would hope that they would be supportive, but you know, it's a different house every 30 days. Sometimes you don't have people that are very supportive. And so that's always in the back of my mind when we're looking at trans clients too. What would you say to someone who is thinking, is now the time for me to get help? Talk to someone who specializes in this or attend a virtual AA meeting and maybe attend more than one, or you can call a treatment center and just ask questions. And there's also um, usually each town or like maybe each county has a, kind of a group that will help people. And it's usually like a free group if you have questions. And if the time is now, let's get you there. If it's not, okay, what do you need to do to get there? Or maybe you start small. Substance use disorder is not defined by how much or how often, but how it impacts your life. Someone can have two glasses of wine every night and it doesn't affect their life at all. But if you are binge drinking on the weekends and blacking out, or even once a month, but it's consistent and it's enough where it's impacted your job or your relationship or driving or risky behaviors, you know, that's a problem. So that's what people, yeah, people are like, well, I don't drink every day. That doesn't mean anything. You don't have to be physically dependent on alcohol to need treatment for alcohol. What's the difference in the person who's been sober for 30 years and a person who's just beginning to live a sober life. Like what is different in their brains? I think if I knew that answer, I would be, I would not be on this podcast, right? (laughs) I would be a multimillionaire. It's different for everyone because we ask people like, what did it for you? And, you know, if you ask one person, it could be, I have everything to lose. And so I will lose my family. I will lose my children. But for some people, that's still not enough. And for some, they'll never, you know, nothing's enough. Um, and unfortunately, we, we lose them or they stay or they end up in jail or they stay active in their addiction. You really have to look at yourself in a way that is not easy to do. You know, it's not easy to look at all the faults and all the mistakes you've made and bad decisions. 
that might have occurred. I mean, we all do that, but people who are using substances more often tend to make them more often. And um, it's really being, I think, giving up like total control and just saying, okay, I own everything I've done and I don't expect anything from anyone and I need to move forward myself on a good path. And how much do you think, and I realize that this would probably be better suited to ask somebody who's been sober for a really long time, but it's not just like we talk about gender. It's not binary, right? I mean, just because you've been sober for 30 years doesn't mean you're cured. No, no, it definitely doesn't. There's a large spectrum of recovery, and I think that's what people don't always understand either. It's not that you're not using, but it's also how well are you living your life now that you're sober. That was Alex Helfer, Chief Clinical Officer at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan and Wilton, Connecticut. Visit them at mountainside.com. After the break. I woke up and cars are just zooming by me and I'm in the middle of 95. And I'm like, oh my God, this is horrible. Meet a Harwinton, Connecticut resident who went from one of many rock bottoms on the highway to fishing for northern pikes on Bantam Lake, sober. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're talking about what it's like to be in recovery. And we're back with Josh Hannon from Harwinton, Connecticut. After years of drinking, quitting drinking, and relapsing, at the time of our conversation this week, he hadn't had any alcohol in two weeks. I asked him to tell me about the first time he ever had a drink. It was down in my parents' basement. They were having a party, and I was probably seven years old or eight years old. And I know we were doing like Ouija board or something like that. And me and my cousins, there was a bottle of peach tree. <laughs> and we're like, ooh, that looks good. So we just took like a cap full of peach tree and drank it and hated it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then I don't know. I think I got into middle school and then beer came in and I hated beer too. And then I felt like I needed to like it and then I ended up loving it. But I, uh, I mean, I've struggled since I was 18 years old. I mean, I've always played in bands. I was always around alcohol. I mean, everything revolved around alcohol, especially in the punk rock community, which I was in. And then my band was pretty much based on alcohol, and all the songs were about alcohol. So every, it was expected that we're drunk and we were together for 20 years, you know? So that definitely did not help. Was there ever a point where you thought, I'm in too deep? Oh, yeah. Pretty much when I woke up on 95 after a show at Toad's Place, and it was like 2 in the morning, and I was heading home. And it was gridlock, just stopped. And I ended up passing out. On 95, I woke up and cars are just zooming by me and I'm in the middle of 95. And I'm like, oh my God, Like I gotta wake up. This is horrible. Like I could die, tractor trailer could have just smashed into me. Ever since then, then I started really thinking like, grow up Josh, you know? At that time I was over 30 years old and not a kid anymore and now I'm still going through it I'm 44 years old <laughs> do you think that the people around you knew that 
You had a problem with alcohol? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody I know, everybody's like, you got to settle down. I mean, I partied like I was 17 until a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so what changed a couple weeks ago? I went down to Boston to visit my brother and sister. And um, I've been on the recovery wagon. I just kind of slipped off it. I was on vacation. I'm like, oh, I'll have a couple beers with my brother. I haven't seen him in a year. And that led into a bad time with us driving down the road. And Armadillo came across the street. We went out of control, smashed the car up. So I spent the night in jail in <laughs> Round Rock, Texas. And that Armadillo, I think, was like a saving point for me. So I was two months sober prior to that. And I knew I shouldn't have drank. That armadillo was something, just a sign from like either my grandma or grandpa or somebody saying, yo, stop. Like you just lived and you spent the night in jail and let's get your life back on track. No more booze. You know, it's just 44 years old. I mean, I just lost my girl that I've been with for like eight years because of alcohol. And I've lost my daughter because of alcohol. So it's just, there's nothing good to come of it. And I don't know why I keep on going back, but this is definitely the time to stop. You know, I just got an Intoxilac put in my car yesterday. Wait, what is that? It's where you have to blow into the car to start your car. Because in Texas, I have to go by Texas laws. And the, your first offense, you got to get an Intoxilac put in. So for a year, now I got to blow into a breathalyzer to start my car. And I'm an on-the-road salesman, so this is going to be a pain. At least I have my job. That's a good thing. So in a way, this device is holding you accountable in a way like nothing before really was. Exactly. Like if I'm out and I'm driving, I, there's no, you can't even have a drop. Listerine will put it off. So it's good. And I'm glad. I'm like, I wish I put it in <laughs> before. Will you tell me about the first full day that you went without a drink? What was it like? Oh, hell, shaky, anxiety, like a lot of anxiety for a couple of days afterwards, actually. Um, I had the shakes real bad. I wouldn't eat. It was just bad. You know, alcohol really took me over, took my body over, like the insides of my body. I mean, I had to go back in with my parents. God bless them because I would have nobody left. This was a couple months ago when I was real bad because of COVID. I was just home all day and I just drank all day, drank all day, drank all day. And then I freaked out and got kicked out. And I came back to my parents and the next day, like I couldn't even hold anything. And my, my mom is totally against drinking. Hated that I drink. But she actually said, I'll, I'll go get you a beer and a shot of whiskey. Just to like calm my, just to get it in me because I could die. <laughs> That's how bad it was. And they did. And one beer and a shot. And all of a sudden, my didn't shake. And it was scary. And that's what I knew. I'm like, oh, my God. My body is totally used to alcohol, needs alcohol. And I'd rather have it need smoothies and salads. <laughs> and sunshine. <laughs> and sunshine. That's right. What have been some of the ways that you've dealt with these withdrawal symptoms? How have you treated yourself? Try to keep busy at all all costs. It's kind of hard now with the COVID going on. So right now my office is the kayak, and I go out and I kayak fish. 
and pretty much every day I'm out and I go through a different pond in northwest corner of Connecticut and uh, just bass fish. It's my zen, you know, it's my yoga. And I love it. I'll spend four or five hours out there. You know, it's a good workout. Clears the mind and you're with nature and outside and sunshine. Have you thought about going into recovery or meeting with somebody or anything like that? I am actually still doing it. What was the process like when you first got started with them? Like, did you call and say, hey, here's my situation. What do I do? How did it work? Yeah, I just walked in there and said, what do I do? I need help. And then they'll call you up and you just start. I mean, I did eight weeks with one counselor. Was it uh, telehealth? Yeah, you can't go in there, so which kind of sucks. But What kind of things would you talk about? Like, would you talk about the addiction? Would you talk about underlying issues, you know, that, that maybe fueled the addiction? What kind of things? Nothing. Yeah, I mean, we tried to get into underlying issues. Um, not so much. I think it was more just worrying about today. And what are you going to do today to keep you busy and not drink? Let's do that or the week let's talk about your week and did you have any problems like any temptations did you you know and then we'll talk about that if if i did they did put me on antidepressants which i've never been on and that actually is helping drastically i think there's a part of my brain that is missing (laughs) that just wants that alcohol but yeah those pills somehow it's just a little dose but it just helps with the cravings you know and keeps your head above water. Yeah. As long as I'm on the water, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned uh, COVID-19 a few times. And I wonder in which ways it's been good for you, this physical distancing we're all doing. And I imagine, you know, there's no shows. There's no, you know, the bars aren't exactly open the way they used to be. Tell me about how you've dealt with your addiction and recovery in this era of COVID-19. It is way better because I'm not going out seeing friends or what friends I have left. Going out to the bars, going to a show, like, that just doesn't happen anymore. That helped out a little. But I think at home, it was always accessible. I mean, my ex, she owns a liquor store. So that was not the best fit. And you should bring home beers to try, whatever. So it was always accessible. And I always tried them because I love beer. I mean, I was like three months sober in the beginning of COVID. Then I just got bored and started drinking again. Or I went to Ireland and started drinking <laughs> drinking again. Was it a Guinness? Yeah, a lot of Guinness and Jameson. <laughs> May I ask about when you started after those three months, when you first put that glass to your lips, what was going on in your mind? freedom from it was actually like ah i could breathe now which is so sad but that's what i felt i was like oh my god i don't have to like hide from my feelings well i'm gonna be hiding from my feelings with booze but at that time i just thought it was the best taste of freedom and i gotta get away i gotta get new freedom you know because it's definitely not working. And I will. I know I will. I mean, I being in jail in Texas, that's my rock bottom. I thought I already hit my rock bottoms, but 
that was like the rock bottom. What were some of the other rock bottoms you thought you hit? Oh, waking up in a cornfield down near the casino with no gas in my car. My car was on. Um, I had no money left. I gambled all the money away. I I forgot what happened, how I got home. But that was my first rock bottom. Like, what am I doing? Like, I don't know. But yeah, so I got sober then for three years. And I felt so good. I was going to the gym every day. And like, everything was good. I had no drama. My whole life it was simple. I just had to, went to work, went to the gym, ate healthy, went to sleep. It was just a simple life, you know. And then I went to Brazil with work. And they were all speaking Portuguese. And I had no clue what was going on. And they drank a lot down there. And so I'm like, you know what? I'm in Brazil. I'll have a beer, too. It's hot as heck down here. I said, oh, I'll just keep it down here. I'll just have a beer down here. And that's it. When I get back, no more drink. That did not happen. And then it just slowly came back, you know. Here I am. You've said a few times that you've lost a lot of relationships. Mm -hmm. With your ex, your daughter, a Mm -hmm. lot of friends. And I know that sometimes part of recovery is owning what you've done with them. Is that something that's on your mind now? Not that you need to do it now, obviously, but do you think about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Especially my daughter. We were so tight. We used to go to shows together. Like She was my bestie, you know? And then she lived in Providence, and then she went away to college. And I just lost touch with her. And it was pretty sad. It still is sad. I mean, I still talk to her maybe twice a year. But she doesn't trust me. And I totally take full responsibility for that. Because, you know, I would say I would do something and then not do it. Because I'd be hungover or drunk or couldn't do it. It's sad. How do you think you'll know when the right time is to have that conversation i have to be sober for at least a couple of years to really like make sure i don't screw her over you know she's 24 now but i don't want to hurt her anymore so i'm just kind of keeping my distance if she calls me of course i'm going to answer her phone but um i just got i really have to work on myself only me be selfish i have to be selfish and really not care about anybody else and just make sure i take care of myself and once I get through the next couple of years, I think I'll be smooth sailing, hopefully. I mean, it's always going to be a struggle. I know that. What makes you think this time will be different? Booze is not fun anymore. It's a burden. It's the devil, pretty much. I mean, I was just having a cigarette outside thinking, like, what good does booze do? Absolutely nothing. Every bad thing that has happened to me is because of it. So why do I do it? Come on, just wake up, Josh. That's where I am, and I'm waking up slowly. One day at a time. Don't pick up a drink today. You just mentioned that you were smoking a cigarette, which, you know, has nicotine. And a lot of people 
who are in recovery from alcohol or other drugs also drink coffee, which is caffeine. So do you draw the line at any substances? <laughs> are you drinking coffee right now? <laughs> drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you figure out what else should or shouldn't go into your body? As long as it's not alcohol. I mean, I try, I think when I stop drinking, I definitely eat healthier, like way healthier. Or I actually eat. When I drink, I don't eat really until like late, late, late at night or whatever. Chicken wings and pizza. Yeah, once I don't drink, I start to get a more healthy regimen. And I like salads and I like smoothies. Every morning I'll have a smoothie now and um, try to feed my body good, except for the nicotine. But One thing at a time. That's it, yeah. I have my Chantix prescription. I just got to use it. Um, I just don't want it right now. I need a vice. I can't just be like, not do anything bad. <laughs> it's just my personality. What do you fear the most? I don't want to die. I really don't want to die. And it's getting close to that. I mean, when my body's starting to shut down because I didn't have alcohol, that's scary. And that's scared the out of me. And I'm not getting any younger. I keep on thinking I'm 25 years old, you know. But I'm, like, seeing all my all these acquaintances and stuff around the scene that are dying. And they're 42, 40, you know, my age. And it's scary. It's real. And it's going to happen. And I, I don't want to be one of those statistics. I want to live and catch fish. Catch a big northern pike up at Bantam Lake. That's my goal. <laughs> That was Josh Hannon from Harwinton, Connecticut. This won't be the last time you hear stories from people in recovery on this show. So if you'd like to tell me your story about what the sober life has been like for you, whether you're a few days into it or it's been decades, whether you've stopped using alcohol or meth, heroin or weed or another drug, send me an email, cwolf at ctpublic.org. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. To subscribe and listen back to previous shows about things like antinatalism, egg donation, psychics, speech disfluencies, and nudism, visit ctpublic.org audacious. You can send me your thoughts and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. Thanks to all of my guests for being with me today, and thank you for listening. <laughs>